the, you could see and feel the humanity seep through the reporters when they were like, why are you doing this? And it was, you know, I'm 50. It's about time I get healthy. I used to run as a teenager. I used to run in the army. I wanted to meet new people. The same answers any human being would give to, to starting something new or exercising. And it was like, oh, these guys aren't really any different than anybody else. And that that was the beautiful power of Back on My Feet is it eradicated the stereotype of homelessness in such a way that made people pay attention to the issue and the people who were currently in that state without judgment. You are listening to the Maybe Running Will Help podcast. We hope you'll take us on a run as you listen in to the conversations with our guests. We'll be checking in periodically to let you know how long the episode and you have been running and to share a few encouraging words to keep you listening and moving. All our episodes are made to educate, entertain, and inspire you with experienced guests, sound effects, and deep thoughts about running and life. Okay, now if you're ready to put down some miles, lace up and let's go. The clock starts now. Guys, today I am so excited to share a conversation I had with our guest, Anne Mullum. She's an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an athlete, and she's one of the most sought after keynote speakers to inspire, empower, and motivate audiences. She promotes self-satisfaction and encourages personal growth. She is the perfect guest for this show. Her vision has not wavered over the years and wants to help as many people as possible create the strongest version of themselves. You know, like there's all of these things that you can do to build up your confidence uh, in, a, in a way that will help you build courage. Anne's entrepreneurial adventures include founding Back on My Feet, an organization that uses running to help people learn how to change the way they see themselves, and Solid Core, which we'll hear more about during the episode. She's also recently become an advocate for sobriety. She's created her own path to success by putting one foot in front of the other while helping others do the same. And I can't end this intro without mentioning that she has completed 11 marathons and has done one on every continent, including Antarctica. I mean, I always say I'm like, everybody should do a marathon just because I can't do it. I'm like, every, everybody, again, as long as you have the right state of mind, yes, yes, you can. And it's really like, there's very few feelings that are just so, I'm like, wow, I did that. Like, it's so yeah. satisfying. Now let's really dig in to my conversation with Ann Mollum. Back of my feet is something I've seen at races and it's always really inspired me because I didn't truly know the story behind it, but I knew enough of the story to be like, wow, like that is what running's about. Yeah, maybe for those who aren't familiar, Back on My Feet is a now national nonprofit that uses running as a vehicle to help those experiencing homelessness create more self-sufficiency in their lives by first focusing on their emotional and mental and physical well-being. And the, the funny and irony about all of this um, Nikki, is that when people, I mean, even when I remember back in the day of how much attention the organization would get because the concept broke people's brains. It was like, wait, if you're homeless, if you're experiencing homelessness and living in a shelter, how can you possibly be a runner? And it's, 
the simplicity of the idea of knowing when anybody wants to make change in their life, I don't care if you're homeless or anything else, if you don't have a positive sense of self and your emotional, mental, and physical well-being is not healthy, the chances of you making any real change in your life is pretty much non-existent. So it became a pretty obvious point of if if we want to help these individuals move out of their current state of dependency in some sense, there's no other way to start than there. Like you cannot skip all of that stuff and act like it's not important. So um, yeah, it seemed pretty pretty obvious and simple, but also just contradictory to what people knew of, of, of homelessness. So I was 26 years old running by a, a homeless shelter in Philly, one that I had ran and, and frankly walked by, uh, not an exaggeration, hundreds of times before. I had to walk by it to get to work and I had been living in that spot for two years. So you're talking about, you know, 300 days back and forth, two years, like almost a thousand times before I really took notice of the people who were outside the shelter. And um, in May of 2007, on one of my morning runs, there was a group of guys that, you know, waved at me. And for whatever reason, I paid attention that morning and I waved back and, and then they were there the next day and it became consistent over two weeks. And uh, you hear people's ideas or when things happen and like, it was a switch for me. I, I was in a place in my life where I was looking for my purpose. I was trying to find fulfillment. I, I wanted to contribute. I didn't really know how in a way that was relevant to my life. Um, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you're searching in all the wrong areas. And I was reading books about nonprofits. I was, you know, in front of my computer trying to like find purpose in my life. And, you know, turns out it was right underneath my feet and doing something that I love that had made me feel invincible. And so there's a street light right by the shelter that turned red. And I remember the moment I was like, oh my God, why don't I start a running club for these guys? Like that, th that this makes so much sense. It, it, running can make you feel like you can fly. And I didn't think it mattered if you were homeless or not. I became a runner when I was 16 to deal with my disturbing um, home life, or I guess uh, upsetting home life of my dad's addiction and gambling coming to fruition. And then my dad moving out or my mom asking my dad to move out immediately after finding that out. I was confused. I was angry. And running gave me that really healthy release to build some dopamine, um, you know, in my own life. And, and I kept running for 10 years until this moment had happened. And I, I was like, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm starting a running club. And it was sort of, um, this was the time in my life where I realized how effective my badgering skills are. Um, mm -hmm. the, the director of the homeless shelter was kind of like, this, this is not, a, this isn't going to work. You know, the guys here are not going to be interested in running and they're homeless. Same, you know, ironically, the same stereotypes that people have about those who are homeless, the people working with the population had the same stereotypes. And I was like, listen, if you can just ask them. I will be there three days a week. Like I will, I will run the program. You won't have to do any other work. And Nikki, I don't know if you're religious or spiritual. I'm not religious, but this program at this specific shelter was an all male program and they were prohibited from having any interaction with women. And so the oh. fact that, yeah, the fact that this director of the shelter, you know, I was like, can you just please meet me? and you know hear my story about my dad who's an addict and and my love of running um 
And can we see if we, I just kept asking and he finally agreed to meet me. I met him and his wife and his name was Mr. McMillan. And, you know, I, I, I don't know why he said yes to me um, for besides like trusting what I was saying was real and honest and breaking the rule of, you know, not having them be around women. And he said, okay, Ann, I'll ask them, but I don't want you to get your hopes up. So he asked, you know, I kept following up like any news and, Within two weeks, he was like, all right, there's nine guys who want to run. And he did not tell them. He didn't say, hey, there's this young blonde who wants to start a running program. He was just, is anybody interested in a running club? And fortunately, you know, there were there were nine guys. And they. I went up to meet them. It was the end of June in 2007. And I went up to meet them in the shelter. And um, there was this immediate connection. It was eerie. It felt yeah. like I had found my people and I had been lost for two years of trying to figure out where I belong and where I fit in. Um, and I fit in in that shelter that night. And it just became clear like what my what my mission and my purpose was supposed to be in meeting those guys. And we all signed a dedication contract for what it meant to be part of the running club. We were going to show up three days a week. We were going to be on time. We were going to have positive attitudes. We were going to put forth our best effort. We were going to support each other. And I, I kid you not when I say it was easy to see that these guys had not been looked at in a way that I looked at them in a really long time, if frankly ever in their life. Here I am, some stranger, some white blonde stranger in front of eight African-American men and one was Caucasian, telling them that they're capable of excellence. Yeah. And, you know, they almost, you could just see like they, they started to believe that that was possible simply by someone else believing in them. Absolutely. Yeah. So we had our first run on July 3rd, 2007. We ran a mile that day and, and some people did okay and, and finished the mile. And some people took them, you know, 20 plus minutes because this was a brand new activity and they haven't prioritized health. Um, but one thing I remember specifically about that day, uh, which was now, gosh, 14 years ago, 15 years ago, the media, every single news outlet was there that first day. I wanted to get the word out and I expected, you know, maybe someone would do a little story. Every news outlet, every newspaper, every TV station had to come and see this for themselves of these men who were homeless actually going for a run. It was like, it's like, this can't be happening. And, and again, when they went over and had the chance to talk to these guys, you could see and feel the humanity seep through the reporters when they were like, why are you doing this? And it was, you know, I'm 50. It's about time I get healthy. I used to run as a teenager. I used to run in the army. I wanted to meet new people. The same answers any human being would give to, to starting something new or exercising. And it was like, oh, these guys aren't really any different than anybody else. And that that was the beautiful power of Back on My Feet is it eradicated the stereotype of homelessness in such a way that made people pay attention to the issue and the people who were currently in that state without judgment. It was like, Wait, you want to go running at 530 in the morning? Like that takes discipline. Right. That takes ambition. That takes a certain commitment to making, you know, some positive changes in your life. And I respect that. And those words just were not associated with people going through homelessness. So the power of that allowed us to build a platform and it allowed us to get a ton of people, individuals, corporations interested and involved in this issue who wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, 
but as far as like the media outlets, is that something, how did they know like what was happening? Did you, yeah, like, I, had some, I had some contacts from my prior job that I had just built some connections with. So I just reached out to them. I sent a press release. You can also find that information online, you know, when you've got news or want them to know about an event. So I just sent out a massive, you know, email and, and invited them to, to come and participate. I wanted to get more people involved and I thought that was the fastest way to do it. You know, there really wasn't, there was Facebook back then, but that was kind of the only platform. And I thought it was the best tool to get some more volunteers to come and, you know, run with us uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I guess that leads me to the question of when you had the media involved, was this for your first run and how were you, how did you know that they were going to show up and, you know, well, that way. <laughs> I did, well, they were communicating and telling me they were going to show up. So I knew that piece of it, but I didn't expect all of it as much as much as possible on day one. I mean, it was a media frenzy from, you know, it was like from July 3rd on, I, I feel like my face, my name, the guys, we were like in all of the newspapers, you know, it wasn't just a one and done. There was this constant curiosity about what's happening with with james and darren and and people like they've started to root for them everybody loves an underdog story and they mm -hmm. love to see somebody you know make the difference in their life and make the changes and do the work and succeed we, we all applaud for that so all of a sudden we created a group of people that the city of philadelphia was rooting for so i think the demand the ratings the feedback that the media was getting about like, hey, what's going on with back of my feet or what's going on with the guys, you know, continued to tell the story. And it wasn't long that national news got a hold of it um, within the first nine months of back of my feet. And now, mind you, there was this vision um, for the organization, but it was going to take time to come to fruition. I had a theory about what could happen if we had enough time to work with the members and put them through, you know, not just a, an emotional and mental positive community and environment, but then we could work on job skills. We could actually build trust to understand how they ended up here because there's a story there. You don't end up in a homeless shelter, you know, as a 30, 40, 50 year old man, like something caused that to happen. And we need to figure out what that was so we can try to make sure that doesn't happen again and get you on a path where you're going to be successful. So we called that program Next Step, Next Steps after somebody was running with us for 30 days and had a track record of showing up 95% of the time. That means you could miss pretty much one run for the month. Then you moved into our next programming where we would help you navigate job opportunities and job training and financial literacy. I mean, think about it, Nikki. If if somebody, if I wanted to get a job, right, I, I could easily reach out to my networks and LinkedIn and, you know, hire a head, hire an executive, you know, search firm or whatever. A lot of people have all these networking opportunities. When these guys wanted to get jobs, there wasn't really any place for them to 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 go. You know, the cell phones also weren't even that prevalent back then. They're living in a shelter, the phones, like most people get a job from, I know somebody, like, let me introduce you to this person. So our plan was to really serve as that network for them and build relationships with employers that we could vouch for the character and the track record and the behavior and the personality and the actions of these members who show up in the morning, are on time, work hard, 
and we get to see their attitudes. So Marriott um, became a, a, an employee, employment partner of ours. And that was when I started hiring people for back on my feet and raising money. That's what I kind of focused on is I need people who can build those partnerships so that we can have a placement program for the members once they earn that ability to or and we think that they're ready to move and take that next step forward. Hey, if you're running, you are about 15 minutes in and so is this episode. Um, I have to now confess that I recorded this podcast uh, with Anne in May. So um, since then, it's incredible. She has founded a new company called We Got Ambition and it's she's it's honestly hard to keep up with everything that she's doing. I totally encourage you guys to follow her on Instagram at Ann Mollum, A-N-N-E-M-A-H-L-U-M, to see all the amazing things that she has going on. Um, she also has a 90 days alcohol-free program, and it looks like she has this um, vacation home rental that is absolutely gorgeous. Um, I am just blown away as I'm sitting here trying to, um, (laughs) refresh some of my information. Uh, and I will definitely continue to research as I'm sitting here and give you more (laughs) at the 30 uh, minute mark. So keep running. Great job. And and I can tell you too, just from my experience, none of these guys wanted a handout. They, they, you know, and that's what I think another misnomer about the population is because you might see some people on the street and then we make a representation about the whole population of like, oh, you know, they're just asking for money. They're just begging and whatever. And it's like, you know, one, don't, don't pass judgment on those people either. You don't know their story. And two, that's not everybody. These guys found such satisfaction in doing the work and being rewarded for it. Same as I do, same as probably you do. It felt good, it felt um, encouraging, and it felt supportive, and it felt promising to them. And they helped to discover their potential, that they they can accomplish things, that they're deserving of reward. I, I mean, I can think to moments where we would take, we would take a lot of pictures and the guys were like, you wanna take my picture? It's like, no one had asked them to take a picture before. And this is such a silly thing too, but, and I brought this from back on my feet to solid core, but the most important word in any language to you is your name. To me, it's my name. If I showed you a picture, Nikki, of like 20 people and you were in it, the first thing you look for is yourself. We all do it. And so it's understanding and, and knowing that. So like on the, on the mile board, everybody's name was there. Like we said their name, we showed them their name. We showed them positive association with their name. And when you break it down, human beings are all wired the same. We want to be respected, cared for, loved, encouraged, you know, recognized, appreciated. That is why people leave relationships and it is why people leave jobs when they're not getting that emotional positive feedback loop um, for the work that they're for the work that they're doing. And we just made sure we were providing that type of environment for them. And that's what kept them coming back. We weren't 
We didn't give them food or shelter. That was not part of our program. They were there because they wanted to be there. They were there because they were getting something out of it that was worth their time. And I still think that that's just a powerful message for folks to realize when someone isn't showing up or when, you know, your business isn't being successful, you're not making an environment that people want to be in. You're not making a product that people want. And you got to fix that or you're not going to be successful. For sure. So can you talk a little bit more about that mile board? Because that was something I actually was like, that stood out to me. So what, how did that work? Like, did you have that at the very first like run and like, or did you like think about that afterwards? Oh no, it's like the first run. I, I lived, so I lived like not even a half mile, maybe a quarter mile from the shelter. So in the morning, you know, I would run down with my poster board and my Sharpie um and either we would put it we would put it in the shelter before we would go to run yeah i think that's what we did i'm like no one carried it and then when we got back right we would as the program advanced over the weeks and new people would join we had a couple different routes and if you were to go run with back on my feet now there probably is a one mile group you know a two mile group and maybe a four mile group so volunteers can pick when they're starting their running group too which one they want to run off on so great we finish you know and then the poster board would come out and it's a cumulative total from whenever they join the program and we would just color in you know the miles for for the day um, and these guys would just love to see that marker next to their name, you know, one, just making sure that I was doing it right. And that I gave them credit for they did. And two, just the notion of like, yeah, like I did that, right. um, that stuff. It's just so simple. You take it back to like kindergarten and kids. And when we watch, I mean, we're so, we're so more subdued about it as we get older, but we all still want attention. I mean, we all still want to be told great job. We also want, we also want those things. And kindergartners are really blatant about that. You know, they don't, they don't know how like social norms and, and, you know, things like that. So it was just like, we need to bring some more of that into this environment. And yeah, the, 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 the community and the positivity and the fact that they weren't treated as somebody who's homeless. I mean, for goodness sakes, think about if you want to volunteer for a homeless shelter, what the main thing is that people do, they go to a soup kitchen. And the homeless uh, people who are experiencing homelessness are on one side and those who are not are over here. You're already creating this dichotomy of us versus them. And you're not, you're making it feel like I'm doing you a favor by serving you. It's like, this is so stupid. How can we connect? You know, do you want to sit down and play a board game? Do you want to sit down and talk? You know, and I found a lot of these guys had great advice about life, but there's more in common than than, than you think. Yeah. And we just homelessness has this thing that like, oh, we're better than than them. We know more than them. We know X. And there's a lot of people out there um, that have jobs and have whatever that are struggling. Um, but they don't, you know, they don't appear that way because they have a job, they have a home, they have sort of the staple things. But I mean, even today, right? The mental the mental health issues, the the alcohol abuse, the, um, and I'm not even talking about, you know, I'm talking about moderate alcohol abuse. I'm talking about like, you know, the drug use that people use, but you know, my research lately, and I've been very into this issue around alcohol, mm-hmm. there's a massive majority of people who, you know, are drinking more alcohol. I mean, frankly, we shouldn't be drinking any alcohol because it's poison for us. Um, but many people are choosing to numb themselves. They're unhappy. Uh, and they're just using it as a social excuse for, um, you know, bad behavior and not having to deal with their issues. And that's not a judgment. It's just as a society, we've allowed that behavior to be an acceptable numbing agent. And it's sort of confusing when you think 
why? Like, why does alcohol always get a pass? If I was like, oh yeah, Nikki, like, you know, I do, I do cocaine two, three times a night. You'd be like, what? Right. But like, yeah, yeah. if I have a bottle of wine two, three nights a night, like, like normalize like, crazy. Yeah. It's totally normalized. How in the heck did you have the knowledge and the foresight to know, like, this is what these people mean? Like at 26, how do you know that? Did you have a, did you go to college for psychology? Like, how do you, how do you get that knowledge? Yeah, I think it was because I paid attention to myself and I knew what I needed. And I didn't, I just didn't think I was that different than, you know, than other people. If like, if this makes me feel good, we're all biologically, you know, made up of a lot of the same stuff. And the Maslow hierarchy of needs, like, yes, I love to, I did not study psychology. I was, you know, political science and, um, and communications, but there was just something that like, we all want to feel good and I want to feel good. And how, how do we make people feel good? It feels good when someone compliments you. It feels good when someone says, you did a great job. Like you're really talented. I really like your hair. I like this. It's like, oh, thank you. Um, it's that positive feedback loop. And I just was like, if you are homeless, you're probably getting none of that. And again, the stereotypes, which I had too, right? Like we all operate in the world with some stereotypes on, on some things to make sense of it, right? We, it's easier to put things in buckets than to sit down and get to know everybody individually. Um, so it just, it just was a little, I guess, innate for me. And I think with my dad too, you know, my dad, I've always had a soft spot for my dad. Um, he grew up in a very alcoholic home. His dad, you know, either committed suicide or accidentally shot himself. No one really, no one really knows. Um, and his mom was an alcoholic who died in her fifties. Uh, you know, he just had a really tough, tough home life and, um, he's my dad. So like, I I love him unconditionally and doesn't mean that I haven't had trauma with him, but at some point to heal myself, I had to sit and think about what was my dad's life like as a kid? How did he end up this way? And what does my, my dad doesn't need, you know, he doesn't need to be criticized. He doesn't need to be made to feel bad. He doesn't need any of those things. That's not going to encourage him to make positive change. So just having that personal experience was really formative for me. Um, and I thought it was super applicable to, to these guys in that particular shelter. And then Obviously, we started expanding and going into more shelters and partnering with those programs. And pretty soon there was, you know, three teams, four teams around Philly. And then it was like, what if we make this work in another market? And when you're driven to the point of like, I want to help as many people as possible. How do I scale this thing? And that part challenged my mind intellectually on a sophisticated level to combine wanting to help people, but then also the business side, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I learned a lot through, through that process. One of the things that my dad told me, even when I was a kid, I've told this story before, but I was young and my sister and brother were young and it was February in North Dakota and we were bored out of our minds. There's nothing to do. At least, you know, we didn't think there was, we had a small house and my dad got sick of us whining and told us to go get our swimsuits. And we, pulled up to a a hotel and we were just like, Oh my God, are we renting a hotel room? And he's just like, Nope, but you're going to walk in there and, and uh, act like you own the place and ask where the pool is. And like, I remember that moment. I remember doing that. I remember nobody questioning me and I've taken, and people might be like, Oh my gosh, you know, you're, you're lying and whatever, but that's not the point of the story. (laughs) The point is I have taken that attitude in most things that I do. And I show up 
like I own the place. I operate like I own the place. I make sure my confidence, you know, matches my drive so that there's authenticity there. I know if I'm involved in something, I will figure it out. Um, I'm a really easy person to, to back because of that. Like I don't lose. I will not put my hands in something that I know that I can't figure out um, and that I'm not passionate about enough to figure it out. So when you're pa- like, even in COVID, and I know we're not talking about Salad Core, which is my business now. When people are like, did you ever think that like, you just weren't going to make it? And I'm like, not once. And you can ask anybody who works with me, my investors, it was never even a conversation. There was never even a moment that there was, what if we don't make it through it? It just wasn't going to happen. Like we cannot control the obstacles that are thrown with us all the time, but you can control how you strategize. You can control how you respond. And the thought was people are going to make it through this. Companies are going to make it through this. And I will be damned if we are not one of those. And it's like, we're going to make hard decisions. It's going to take every day. It's going to, you know, we need the smart, right people around the table who are thinking differently than I'm thinking. Um, and, you know, we we not only navigated and survived, you know, we raised 50 million of capital in the middle of COVID, uh, not at a, a decreased valuation either. We were like, we are doubling down on in-person fitness and there's nobody who's going to, you know, outperform us in this space. And we were just committed to it. Dude, where, like, where does that confidence come from? Like for somebody who is like, you know, in a different position or whatever, and maybe like trying to find it or whatever, like, what's your best advice for having that kind of confidence? Um, I, again, I, I think some of it goes back to the authenticity and some of it comes with experience and, and age, right? You've got to go through some of those things. I wasn't always this secure. I definitely had, and I still have insecurities. Of course, we all do. Um, but back when I was in my 20s, I cared a lot of, of, of what people thought. Um, and my first big experience of you know, making a decision for myself was with Back on My Feet when I had just taken this big job at Comcast um, and you know, I went to graduate school. Like if, if my education was for anything, it was for a job like this. Like that's why I did all these things. And here I was given this opportunity and I had six weeks until I was supposed to start. So I had a six week sort of window when back on my feet starts when I was supposed to start this job. And over those six weeks, I was like, I am, I am supposed to do this. Like I'm supposed to do this with my time, as much time as I possibly have. I'm, I'm going to build this into a nonprofit. I'm going to raise money. I'm going to hire staff. I'm going to pay myself. And everybody was like, Anne, well, you, you've seriously, like, seriously, like, it's really great that you care about these guys, but you're going to walk away from this opportunity. Like, what are you going to do to pay your bills? You know, what are you going to do when it gets winter in Philly and gets cold enough where like, it's not fun to run in the morning and takes a different level of person. I mean, I'm not kidding, Nikki. I, I could not find one person, one adult figure, figure, one mentor, one respected um, anybody to tell me this was a good idea. And that was the first time where I was like, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I am the one who will have to live with myself. I will spend the rest of my life wondering what would have happened. And, and additionally, I'm like, you don't get a gift like this very often. All of like the, 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 the media, the news, the story, my personal story, the healing I was feeling by being able to help men who reminded me I'm my father. And I'm like, if this isn't a sign, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And I have to try. 
And the worst case scenario is it doesn't work out, but I tell you not, I like thought about that for a second. I'm like, it's not, not going to work. I won't let it. I have too much at stake. There's too much at stake for these individuals who can have a better life. And when you're just motivated on a profound level that, that can make you cry when you think about it, mm -hmm. that when you're just like, this is what I'm supposed to do. You just, it's not an option. You figure it out. You do whatever you need to do to figure it out. And I have felt that way a few times, you know, in my life. Um, and I, I think it's, again, it's important to get involved in those things that make you feel that way. Yeah. You know, like if I'm like running a coffee shop, I might be like, I just, you know, it takes too much time. I don't care yeah. enough. Right. Okay, enough. Relationships that end at the end of the day, it's like, you, you just didn't care enough. Otherwise you would have figured out a way to, to make it work. You put in the time, the energy, the emotion, the whatever. And I'm also not giving any judgment. Sometimes it's the right call to call it and be like, this is no longer serving, you know, me or you or whatever. And it's time to move on. I left back on my feet to start solid core. And mm -hmm. I left because I felt deep down that I, I am a serial entrepreneur. I'm my gift to the world is to create and to build. I am not supposed to find this one thing and then do it for the rest of my life. I just don't, that's not my path. And I was really certain and adamant that back of my feet is not about Anne. And the longer mm -hmm. I stay here, the more it's going to become about Anne. And this organization needs to be able to work without its founder. I stepped down from SolidCore last year for the same reason. Like the things that I create, if they don't work without me, I am doing a massive disservice to the people who are involved in those organizations and companies. And I, I need to make sure that I'm building stability and a foundation to provide the service that the company and the mission of the company is saying it will do. And if it's ever reliant or dependent on one person, it's an irresponsible act. Um, so what is the, the, can you tell us a little bit about solid core? Like what the, how is it different from your passion for back on my feet? How is it the same? Like, how does it align with who you are and your values? That sort of thing. Yeah, great, great question. And people ask that a lot, like a nonprofit, for profit. And when I left and when I stepped down, Nikki, people were like, oh, she must be creating something else, you know, in this space of, you know, giving and helping and whatever. And then when people found out I was sort of opening a high end, you know, boutique fitness concept, it was like, huh? Like, that's not what that's not what our viewpoint is of Anne. That's not what we think of her. She's supposed to be so selfless and so this. Right. And uh, I, I mean, I can talk a lot about that too, because I have a lot to say on people's expectations of, of women and business and success and money. And it drives me up the wall. Uh, the criticism that female founders take from society on how they should be and operate and what they should donate and everything else. Um, yeah. The expectations are completely out of line based on what we what we hold men to um and it just it just drives me nuts so yeah, yeah. so it's the same because once i discovered pilates i was like oh my god i didn't know you could work out this way i thought to be an athlete and to be fit the rite of passage is you beat up your body right you're like willing to sacrifice and be injured and it should hurt and all of these sort of things and when i did pilates in la I was like, 
oh my God, one, that was very challenging in such a different way. Two, it was effective. Three, it was safe. And four, I'm like, there's something here. If I, if I, as an athlete, I mean, I've done some of them, 11 marathons, right? Several triathlons, boot camps, you name it. If I don't know that you can work out like this, so many other people don't either. Right. So I started to take Pilates back in, in New York when I, that's where I was living at the time. And I'm like, this can be done better. There is an athletic uh, undertone here that's not being brought out that needs to be developed. There's no real brand around this way to work out, not in at least a cool way that like I connect to. I'm like, where's the dark music? Or sorry, the dark lights, the music. Where's the vibe? Where's the community? And I was like, I want mainly women. And yes, of course, we have men in our program. But I'm like, I want women to feel as good about their body and themselves as I started to feel after doing Pilates and like, wait till I get my hands on a community that I can authentic, that I can add the authenticity in where people are just going to, you know, feel like this is a place where you come. And our tagline is to create a stronger version of yourself inside mm -hmm. and out. And it just felt really representative of who I am. And there's part of me that wanted to try my hand at a for-profit space just to, to have a completely different experience. And it was something that I'm like, I can scale this. You know, I want to open. And Nikki, too, people are like, did you ever think you would, you know, have so many studios? Like, again, looking at me like I'm supposed to be a deer in the headlights. Like, no. And I just had no idea how this happened. Like, screw that. I'm sorry. I'm, like, I'm a businesswoman and I'm smart and I know what I'm doing. And I, yes, I've always known from the beginning that I wanted to build a massive empire based around an environment where people could feel good, be challenged, be held accountable to their goals and be in an environment that takes you as you are, builds you up and, and spits you out a stronger and more resilient person. Um, and that was really exciting to me, but I took some of the same things, the names, right? When you go to solid core, people will hear their name in class. Your coach introduces you. Mm -hmm. It's really important that you feel like we know who you are. We see you. Um, the, the language that we use about, and we're going through this whole rebrand right now, but like, you know, we're like some, I have so many opinions, but like, even like, yeah. I feel like Nikki, because here's your honor, like the whole, like the self-care message last year, encouraging people to just eat whatever they want. If you want to, you know, do nothing and, and, you know, we're in a pandemic and it was just feeding people bad behaviors, excuses, you know, mm. lie on the couch, Netflix, binge. Oh my God, life is so hard right now. Life is this. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? And when life is hard, you get going. When life is hard, you have, there are people in the pandemic that got in the best shape of their life. And yeah. there are people that chose to take a much different approach with that. And I want to be clear that some of that was a, a, a choice. Like I, I want to empower people to remind them that there are 24 hours in the day and you have the ability to use that time, you know, as best as you can. And I know I've also don't have the same opportunities, but you make time for what's important. And at Solid Core, we are like, listen, self-care is setting your alarm and not pushing snooze. Self-care is showing up for yourself when it's not easy. Self-care is committed to, to being, you know, better than you were yesterday, to learning, to growing. It's not about being complacent. It's not about taking the easy way out. And that is not what we're going to encourage you to do. You're not going to feel good by constantly giving in to the impulse, by constantly giving in to the temptation, to the easy way out, to the non-work. It doesn't, I mean, research shows this, right? It doesn't 
actually do anything for your dopamine, for your levels of mental wellness. It actually makes it worse. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that's like what the, the brand is a lot about is like show up when it's not easy. That's what's going to make you feel good. We're 30 minutes in, and as promised, I want to give you some more information, um, updated information on what Anne has been up to. So she, this, um, we got Ambition, looks like a boutique um, fitness and wellness company, and they have four locations opening up in New York City in 2023. So this is a very fresh venture for Anne, and... um, I wish I lived in New York because it looks like so classy. Um, incredible. Uh, let's see what else we have on We Got Ambition. Yoga inspired. Maybe it's yoga inspired workouts. Um, I mean, it's, I just like the business is like, opening and there's social media up already there's a website everything is so organized and well done let's see here's a quote the hard truth is there is no one we admire or respect that chooses easy choices over hard choices even ourselves wow that's pretty powerful okay ambition they have it the definition on the Instagram and it says noun, whatever you think it means, think bigger. That is so awesome. Very motivational. Okay. So that is, we got ambition on Instagram and we got ambition.com. Check it out. Now for me, I'm like, I can imagine that there is anything that you are afraid of, but is there anything that scares you? Um, yes. And it's just like, not, you know, and this will sound maybe like people, people might roll their eyes. I don't care, but like, I, I want to do and achieve, you know, so much. And I always worry that like, even, you know, people like, Oh my God, you already done so much. I'm like, yeah, but that's in the past. And I want to continue, you know, to do more and the best, you know, feeling will be sort of at the end of my life. If I know my life is, is ending and have the privilege to be in that position where, you know, it's like, okay, things are slowing down, you know, that I will have, um, left a mark in this world that teaches people again, specifically women to stand up for themselves, to not be bullied by societal norms. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I am demanding. I am, um, I am a tough negotiator. I have much more masculine energy than I do female energy. I know that. I don't mind that about myself. I march to the beat of my own drum. I do not apologize to that. I do not owe anybody anything. No one owes me anything. And I do what I think is right, even in the face of it being an unpopular opinion. And if I can continue to be a pillar of of inspiration and a source of relevancy for people in that space where they can learn to do it to themselves. I I think, you know, I will feel very good about my time that I've spent on this, on this planet. But yeah, I just worry about like not having enough time to, to do all the things that, that I want to do. Some people are just afraid of leaving this world without making an impact. 
like what I was thinking, your fear is probably something along those lines. It's not being able to impact the world in, in your full capacity to do so. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people have fears of failure and they have fears of these things, but man, if you can just figure out a way, and I think you have to, just like anything else, right? You want to get stronger. Guess what? You know, physically you've got to go to the gym. You've got to stress the muscles. You want to get used to rejection, practice getting rejected. Mm. Like, I know that sounds so scary and I, it's like, sounds so silly. It's like that, that boy that you have a crush on, ask him out. If he says no, he says no, but you're not going to get any better at dealing with rejection or not facing your feel of failure by protecting yourself from failure and from rejection. The approach is get comfortable with someone saying no so it doesn't have an impact to your self-esteem, to your self-worth, to your self-value. And then you just learn to be like, all right, that person said no. Like, right. oh, I like me. Or if you hear no on your business idea, like that, you just, you got to continue to put yourself out there in a way that feels a little uncomfortable. But I've, I've always said this, Nikki, like, I'm not, I know that I'm smart, right? But I, but I'm not the smartest person in the room. Like book smart, I'm pretty average. My success, my wealth, my everything is tied to, I am willing to put myself out there when the majority, strong majority of the population just isn't. They don't want to deal with failure or rejection. And I'm like, I am not, I'm, I'm doing it anyway. Like I, I would rather deal with fear and rejection than deal with regret of not trying. That right. to me sounds much worse. So do you believe courage over confidence? Um, I, I don't think they're binary. I think you, I think you need both and you can learn the confidence piece. You know, it's little things like, you know, how you project your voice, eye contact, sitting up straight when you walk down the street, are you constantly with headphones in because you don't want to, you know, there is a presence. You can tell when you're in the presence of a confident person. You know, I give this example when people come to salad court for the first time and they see somebody who's, you know, on their toes doing plank works and not taking breaks. I'm like, they didn't start that way. They had to do the work and, the, and they had to progress to get there. And I think a lot of times people just think like, I'll never be like that. And I'm like, that person hasn't always been that way. Mm -hmm. And the difference is they're willing to do the work. You don't, you're not, you don't feel your confident speaking, take a public speaking course, you know, like there's all of these things that you can do to build up your confidence uh, in a, in a way that will help you build courage because you'll feel better about yourself. Um, when I feel like I have the most confidence, it's when I am, when I trust myself too, I'm not afraid to say, I don't know. I, I'm not going to speak on topics where I'm like, I, you know, if you ask me a question about neuroscience, I'd be like, I don't really, I can't, I can't speak. I'm not going to pretend and bullshit you. Um, so I speak up on the things that I feel like I have something to say on. And, you know, when I'm learning, I, when I'm growing, so I consume a lot of content, podcasts, books that like fuel my opinions about the world. I feel like I, I listen, you know, I'm very pro-choice, but I can understand somebody who's pro-life. I'm not just like, I just can't understand. I'm like, I get it. And if you're not willing to reach across the, the aisle per se, you, you're doing a disservice of not understanding a full array of an issue, like learn, educate yourself. I feel most confident when I'm working out. I feel most confident when I'm, you know, have quality relationships where I'm showing up to those relationships. I feel confident when I say no, like I don't, you know, and my mom, bless her heart. <laughs> my mom says, you know, like Emily does what she wants. I'm like, you're damn straight mom. 
And, you know, you, as women, again, we are sort of taught we have to be in service of others all the time and it's making women miserable. Yeah. And I, I will not hang out with somebody I don't want to hang out with. I will not do an activity I do not want to do unless, you know, my niece wants me to, be, you know what I mean? There's difference yeah. of yeah. showing up for a person who you love and adore and it's important to them. Um, but knowing when to say no and, and not being pushed around and knowing my boundaries and standing in my power. And when you do that over and over again, you just get a little bit taller. I have so many things I still want to ask you. I want to ask you about your, um, like, are you still running? Are you still running? Are you, do you still train for races? Yeah. So I got in an accident, um, a pretty bad accident three years ago. I was in a, I was sitting on a jet ski in the water, of course, and uh, an acquaintance ran right into me and I had a compound femur fracture in, in the water. Um, so it was, it, I mean, listen, I'm very lucky. He, sh he should have killed me. Oh At God. the very least, he should have taken my leg off. Like you're talking about a, a, a pretty heavy jet ski going at 30 miles an hour. I mean, he snapped wow. my femur in half, um, wow. just hit me in the exact right spot that, you know, it was a clean break all the way through. But, you know, it's it's caused some complication for my running career. Right after mm -hmm. that, I had trained and was going to do the um, DC marathon in March of 2020, end of March. Obviously, that did not happen. Yeah. Um, and I really haven't ran too much since because of some of the uncomfort and the, and the pain that I feel in the leg. But yeah. I've been starting to do some therapy, actually, that's really working. It's called counter strain. Um, it, I'd never heard of it before. You can look it up. It's yeah. Tony Robbins really speaks to it, but it's really been helping. So I've started to pick up and do some running at like berries and shorter distances um, to try to uh, re-engage my relationship with the sport. What was your first marathon? My first one was Marine Corps down in DC. I've done that one twice. Um, my fastest one was Philly, um, but I run a marathon on every continent and that was a cool goal to achieve. I, I, I finally did Antarctica in 2019. Oh my God, how was that? You know, muddy. You're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's muddy. We were on like King George's Island and it, you know, it, it was actually in the thirties. It was really windy, um, at very hilly and very, very muddy. So yeah, that was the, the marathon. We were actually, it was like touch and go there for a while because we were on a ship and getting, you know, getting to land and the wind was so bad. So, um, so yeah, we had to wait. Like we were like, when it, they're like, we cannot tell you when we were able to, cause we had to take the, Oh, what are those things called? I'm blanking the little boats ah, to shore. Um, the Zodiacs, I think the Zodiacs, the Zodiacs to shore. And like, yeah. you couldn't go in the water until the wind died down. So we just had to sit there and wait until the wind gave us a little bit of a window to get to shore. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Do you think that's the most challenging one that you run? That's the second one. The most challenging one I ran was in Africa, South Africa. I just oh. wasn't prepared. And I did the court, I didn't do a lot of research on it. And there was, you know, 50 of us uh, who ran that. And same thing, the elevation, we were on a game reserve. It was called the big five marathon. The, the elevation, I forget the exact, you know, gradient, but the, this hill that we had to run down and up, if it was like literally a, a two more degrees, cars would have flipped over. So you oh could not God. run. Down the hill. You had to like, 
you know, if you ran right. down it, you would, so you had to kind of like walk down, <laughs> running up it, and then the elevation. When you get to the bottom of this hill, it was sand for for miles. You're oh, running in like deep sand, yeah. And it's just like this is just ne- and the heat. It was that that was my longest marathon and my most unpleasant, but it got done. <laughs> so what if you remember that race when it was like super challenging, it's super hard? Like, do you remember some of the things that you told yourself to keep going or uh, you know to get to the finish? Yeah, you have just, a mantra? Yeah, one uh, one of the guys there just befriended me, and we just did it together. And normally, I'm like with my headphones in and whatever. And he sort of saw I was struggling a bit, and and he was really helpful to me. And he just kind of was like, "I'm not doing this for time either. Like, let's do this together." And that that was really great. Oh, that's awesome. So, what was your best time, if you don't mind me asking? No, not at all. I, I was actually looking at that earlier because I was like, "Man, I used to be fast." It was three twenty three. Um, yeah. It, yeah. And I, same thing. I'm like, I didn't really even train too hard for that marathon. Like, I feel like in my prime and, you know, who knows, maybe my prime is still in my future. Like, yeah. you know, 315 marathon would have been really possible for, for, for me. And if I can get my leg figured out, there's no reason to potentially not try to really get on a training regimen and, and, you know, women in their like late thirties, early forties usually yeah, but- are. Yeah. It's like prime for, you know, endurance. No, we're kicking ass right now in uh, running. So, but yeah, you got. We want to have you back in the running community. Hope, hopefully, you can get to maybe you get to Baltimore and do the Baltimore Marathon. That's pretty tough. Pretty tough. I know. I have. I have done. I, I think I did that half marathon. I know with back on my feet, we've done it. I'm pretty sure. I'm like I can't remember if I ran it or if I did the relay. But yes, Baltimore and people don't expect it. It is very hilly. So the last thing I want to ask you about, if you want to talk about it, is your recent. Um, you know, sobriety and uh, what your thoughts yeah. on, on alcohol and how you're trying to help with, uh, you know. Yeah, I think, um, listen, as, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there's a, the majority of, of people that I know fall in this category where we, society has sort of convinced us if you're not an alcoholic, right, that like if you're not an alcoholic and you're not, you know, pardon my language, but not like shitting your bed and it's not disrupting really your relationships or jobs or you know, anything else, like it's totally fine. And there are several things you can be looking at depending on whatever gonna, is going to motivate you to look into it, right? But it's horrible for us from a health perspective. Something I didn't know is three drinks a week for women um, increases your chance of breast cancer by 25%. And I'm like, I was having way more than three drinks on a week, uh, you know, for the last however many years of my life. And I was the same mindset of, listen, I'm a successful entrepreneur. I'm super fit. I'm this, I eat right. Like alcohol is just sort of, you get a pass. And the reality is all those other things, they don't negate the alcohol. It's just like smoking. You can be the healthiest person, be vegan, whatever. If you are smoking, your body doesn't not your your body doesn't not process smoking or alcohol differently. It's poison. It's ethanol. Your body has to, you know, get it out of its system. It has to go through the liver. And frankly, you know, for for people who do care about their their fitness goals, um, muscle tissue is one of the first past places where alcohol gets gets absorbed. So all of the work that you're doing, especially if you're going to the gym at night and then having drinks afterward. You're just like undoing all of that great work that you that you did. So again, there's lots of reasons to you know to and not do it. A lot of people use it for a numbing agent, you know, which I got in this horrible habit of most nights having two drinks, something, right? Two tequilas. There was always a reason. It's like it's Tuesday. I had a great day. 
I had a shitty day. I'm meeting a friend for dinner. You know, I'm watching a movie. Like livers literally always from, you know, after seven o'clock, my brain was like, it's time to have a, a cocktail. I'm like, okay, it's addictive. It's addictive. And for people who continue to drink casually, if you're telling yourself, oh, at some point I won't do this. Listen, it's addictive for everybody. The more that you do it, the more that you are training your brain that it needs alcohol to be happy. And if you, you know, when I, I can think like when I had a drink a couple of weeks ago and I was after my first drink, I'm like, I feel really happy. Like it's really, really understand how, how easy it is for us to associate having a good time with alcohol and what it actually does in the brain. It is tricks your brain that all the other things going for a bike ride, a Friday night, game night, whatever, it's not as fun without alcohol. So you need to have a period of abstinence to recalibrate and, and reset all of your functions to work, to work properly. So listen, people can do their, their own research on it. I'm, I'm not shaming, but I'll tell you what, like nutritionists, dietitians, fitness professionals, it's, they're all condoning the use of alcohol and it makes zero sense. Like, I'm not saying I will never have a drink again, but as a professional, I will never promote it. I will never encourage it. Right. I, you know, if I'm doing it. You know, I know that it's not the healthy decision for me and I'm fully aware of it, but I feel very confident. You know, I have broken my habit um, of this sort of daily, daily thing. I won't allow myself to do it. And it's taking willpower. That's the other thing about our brains is we only have so much willpower, Nikki. Like, again, people can do their own research on it. I can't speak intelligently about how the science works just yet. But if you're having to exert willpower on so many things, it gets depleted. And at the end of the day, you're out of willpower. Fortunately, I don't need willpower around food. I did for a long time when I was throwing up my food. I don't need willpower about working out. Like, I want to do it. I look forward to doing it. But I still there are still nights where I am exerting an enormous amount of willpower to not have a drink. And that is because my brain has a lot of rewiring to do. Um, and I'm, I'm committed to doing it. You have to let me know if you ever come to Baltimore, I'd love to, uh, love to run with you or, uh, yeah, if you do the race, I'll definitely sign up. Yeah, and get your and salad core too. Like I, yeah. I one of my friends just came and he's a big runner now. And and I'm like, trust me, like people have taken double digits off of their Ironman and their and their marathons by doing solid core because you're strengthening all of your slow twitch muscle fibers as well, and the, which are your endurance muscle, muscles. So when you get fatigued, these muscles, you know, have the strength and ability to keep you going. It's it's amazing. And as runners, I mean, I remember back in the day, we're horrible at cross training. It's just like. Wow. We just, we just run and you know it's the same muscles used over and over again. You need a really strong core to keep yourself going and running. Um, so I always tell folks like try, try it like for your next race that you're doing. And we have classes where it's arms and abs and just abs. You don't have to worry about your legs if, you know, you don't want to do that aspect of it, but it makes a big difference and, you know, put my stamp of approval on that. Are you in uh, Baltimore? Are you in there? In Yeah. Yeah. We have a studio in Baltimore. Oh, I'm going to look, uh, definitely for sure check that out. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you've been amazing. Like I hardly had to ask any questions because you answered them before I could even ask them. So I appreciate, I appreciate it. Um, and I know that our listeners are going to love hearing what you have to say. So thank you so much for your yeah. time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Nikki. Good luck in the marathon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yay!
Uh, thanks for being here and listening to this show. I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed listening to Anne. And uh, again, a special thanks to Anne for speaking with me and uh, letting us learn from her. And we wish you, Anne, all of the best with your future endeavors. Uh, we will be watching and excited to see what's next. Um, guys, you can follow her on Instagram again at Ann Mullum and on annmullum.com. That's A-N-N-E-M-A-H-L-U-M.com. Check her out and have an amazing day, week. Until next time. Bye guys. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Maybe Running Will Help podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share the show if you enjoyed this content. Oh, and tag us on Instagram and Facebook so we can thank you for helping us to grow and reach more people to provide hope to others through our community. Together, we can show others that running and our community will help. Dude, Anne, I don't think you can define Anne.